Gary Victor and the politics of translation. The importance of translation in colonial and post-colonial contexts has long been recognised. Today, so numerous are the articles and monographs devoted to post-colonial translation that it can sometimes seem that the two disciplines, translation studies and post-colonial studies, are merging into one. Post-colonial studies are ineluctably political, and in the view of the editors of a recent volume on post-colonial translation, they have provoked an ideological turn in a discipline which, in the hands of pure linguists, could sometimes tend to abstraction. The act of translation always involves much more than language, write Basnet and Trivedi. Translations are always embedded in cultural and political systems and in history. For too long, translation was seen as purely an aesthetic act and ideological problems were disregarded. At the same time, the concept, the concept of translation itself, of what it is that's translated, has undergone a significant revision. Maria Timoshko, for example, has interrogated the relation between postcolonial translation and postcolonial writing per se. Quote, Although there are differences between literary translation and postcolonial writing, such differences are more significant to prima facie than they are upon close consideration. These two types of textual production converge in many respects. As the metaphor of translation suggests, the transmission of elements from one culture to another across a cultural and or linguistic gap is a central concern of both these types of intercultural writing, and similar constraints on the process of relocation affect both types of text. End of quote. For his part, André Lefebvre is concerned with the process of what he calls rewriting, and he too stresses the politico-ideological dimension of the activity. Quote, Rewriters adapt, manipulate the originals they work with to some extent, usually to make them fit in with the dominant or one of the dominant ideological and poetological currents of the time. End quote. But I'd like to discuss today a kind of rewriting that Lefebvre does not consider, namely the rewriting of their own works by men and women who do write literature. I will be considering the case of a novel written originally for a small domestic audience in a backwater of francophone literary production, and reworked for consumption by metropolitan French or international readership. The text in question is A Langue des Rues Parallèles by Haitian novelist, short story writer, playwright, filmmaker and journalist Gary Victor. I would like to use a comparison between the first and second editions of Victor's novel to show how, in Pasnet and Trevedi's words, translations are always embedded in cultural and political systems and in history. A Langue du Rue Parallèle was first published in March 2000 by the Port-au-Prince commercial printer L'Imprimeur 2. It was republished in France in 2003. A full context would have to reach back at least as far as the end of the Duvalier dictatorship in 1986. A no less important context would be that of the Haitian writer writing from inside Haiti. What were the effects of the isolation of the Duvalier years? What possibilities existed for finding a publisher outside of Haiti? I will, however, be obliged to talk later of the immediate political context of the years separating the first publication of the novel in 2000 and its reissue in France in 2003, even if I don't have time for the broader context that I've just alluded to. The first-person narrator of the novel, Eric, is an embittered ex-government employee who has been sacked under the latest structural adjustment programme. Blaming the finance minister, Matarou, for his downfall, Having lost his income, he is also abandoned by his girlfriend, Salome. He acquires a gun and resolves to kill the minister. The novel, novel follows his killing spree through Port-au-Prince. 
Meanwhile, every mirror in Haiti has stopped reflecting, and writing starts to invert, becoming illegible, except in a mirror, of course. The novel is highly episodic and virtually impossible to summarise in a linear fashion. Suffice it to say that it includes a voodoo ceremony in the course of which Eric urinates on the President of the Republic, the death of Eric's, of Eric's poet cousin at the corner of parallel roads, a lubricious and diminutive statue of Saint Peter, le petit Saint-Pierre, and God himself, who rides a donkey with headlamps for eyes. Ever present in the background, heard but never seen, is the sinister Chosen One, or l'élu, whose hordes, we are repeatedly told, control the streets. The novel is a stylistic mishmash comprising elements of detective fiction, noir, thriller, fantasy and satire, but it also has clear, realist pretensions. It references the topography of Port-au-Prince very precisely, and is replete with allusions to a precise historical moment. Despite the allusive nature of the text, the referential where and when could hardly be clearer. In-text references to real-world events, such as the film The Matrix, for example, which was released in Haiti in March 1999, situate the action precisely to April-May 1999. The same is true of the who. Although the president is never named as René Préval, who was president of Haiti from 1995 to 2000, the latter's notorious alcoholism serves to identify him with similarly alcoholic président in the text. In a similar vein, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who would be elected Préval's successor in November 2000, is never actually named, but the physical description of the élu, of his voice, his verbal mannerisms, his trademark use of enigmatic créole, leads us in no doubt as to his real identity. The alcoholic president and the demonic élu are textual masks, then, that serve paradoxically to draw our attention to the identity of their wearers. This technique of naming without naming, or indirection, has long been a practice of Haitian writers, writing under authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. Whilst more could be said about the dangers of assuming correspondences between the diegetic world of the text and the world outside of it, I think a more interesting question concerns the authority of the text's representations, as it is here that the concrete effects of Victor's rewriting of his novel are most evident. So, the novel was republished in France in April 2003 by Van Dyer, a small independent publisher specialising in books from the non-metropolitan francophone world. The 2003 edition of the novel includes a short note de l'auteur, or author's foreword, of which I'll say more in a moment, which purports to explain how the text differs from the first Haitian edition of 2000. I've added a few details, writes Victor, but it's still basically the same story. These few details, in fact, amount to some 2,000 words. A full table of variants would run to about 20 pages. One could divide the textual variants between the two editions into three categories in ascending order of interest. 1. Corrections of typographical errors, punctuation, minor inconsistencies, stylistic infelicities and grammatical errors. 2. Modifications designed to explicate or elucidate cultural or linguistic particularities that would otherwise remain obscure for a non-Haitian readership. 3. Editions clearly attributable to the author, which fall partly into the second category, but which are primarily intended to reinforce certain aspects of the political message of the text. Revisions in the first category are of the kind that one would expect to find to a certain extent in any text going into a second edition. In this case, there are literally hundreds of them. They may be relatively uninteresting in their own right, but that is not to say that they are insignificant. 
if nothing else, they're evidence of the difference that a copy editor and a proofreader can make to a text. Rewritings that belong to the second category can readily be understood in terms of a well-known problematic in translation theory, to foreignize or to domesticate. A domesticating translation will bring the source text closer to the target text audience. A foreignizing translation will not familiarize exotic elements in the source text for the benefit of the target text audience, but will rather require the latter to move closer to the source text. By exotic elements, I'm here referring to culturally specific elements familiar to readers of the place where the source text originated, in this case Haiti, or even more specifically, Port-au-Prince but probably unfamiliar to readers who have little knowledge of that place. A wholly foreignizing translation or rewriting would simply preserve those elements in the target text without any attempt to explain them intratextually or by means of an extra-textual glossary. A wholly domesticating rewriting would either find cultural equivalents for them in the target culture or eliminate them altogether. The strategy adopted by Victor and his editors at Von Dyer lies somewhere between the two. The text, as I've said, follows the murderous rampage of Eric through the streets of port prince Apart from one or two occasions where Victor uses location jump cuts of the kind practiced in the cinema, one could easily plot Eric's path on a map of the city. It is topographical references, place names and street names that are most often F explicated in the French edition of the text. Here is a typical example. Quote, I just reached the corner of Avenue John Brown and Rue Lamar. There, people were stoically waiting for a tap-tap. That's the 2000 Haitian edition of the text. In the 2003 edition, I just reached the large main avenue, which goes up to Pétionville, the former rich suburb of the capital. At a crossroads, people were stoically waiting for a tap-tap. Here, the culturally specific proper name has been replaced by a paraphrase and it will be noted that the first explicitation immediately necessitates a second one. Here is another example, one amongst dozens. Quote, I allowed my gaze to settle on the bottom of the Canapé Vert valley, where the shanty towns were starting to devour the green space, which becomes, in 2003, I allowed my gaze to wander in a valley that had once been protected zone, but which was now starting to be colonised by the waves of poor people coming from the countryside. In this instance, the rewriting provides the reader with an explanation, the rural exodus, for the growth of the shanty towns. Translation theory can help us understand what is going on here. Here is Shoshana Blumkulka. The process of interpretation performed by the translator on the source text might lead to a target language text which is more redundant than the source language text. This redundancy can be expressed as a rise in the cohesive explicitness in the target language text. End of quotation. In the case of Victor's novel, this increase in redundancy becomes all the more intrusive when it is borne by a first-person narration. The inherent redundancy of all first-person narratives, the narrator is always, to a greater or less extent, telling himself things he already knows, is amplified by the process of exegetic rewriting. Would a citizen of Port-au-Prince really refer to it? It's best-known thoroughfare by the periphrase La Grande Avenue Principale qui menait à Pétionville, or to the equally well-known Canapé Vert, simply as une vallée, as if it had no name. This constant explicitation, and there are many dozens of examples of the kind I've just quoted, also lends a decidedly didactic quality to the narrative. And this didacticism, I argue, takes on a particular function when it comes to rewritings in our third category. 
So far, we've seen that the strategy employed for the rewriting of Alonle de de Rue Parallèle for a non-Haitian readership entails either in-text explanation or simple deletion of exotic elements. A third possibility is provided by the inclusion of a glossary at the end of the volume. This glossary, in fact, contains 31 entries, most of which are explanations of Haiti's two most characteristic cultural particularities, voodoo and créole. In an earlier example, the term tap-tap was asterisks in order to refer the reader to the glossary, so let us follow the asterisk. It is true and entirely undebatable, as the glossary informs us, that a tap-tap is a form of communal transport in Haiti. If we follow the asterisks from the term, however, the term shime, we are presented with the altogether more debatable assertion, namely that the shime are, quote, the new version of the tonton makouts. And yet, the two definitions are endowed with equal authority. The cumulative effect, both of in-text explanations and of definitions in the glossary, is to reinforce the exegetic authority both of the first-person narrator, who is responsible for the in-text explications, and of the author, responsible for the foreword and the peritextual glosses. I suggested that the most interesting category of rewritings are those which are designed to reinforce what can only be called the political message of the novel. If not the most numerous, they are by far the most voluminous. There are some 50 or so editions running from a single word to two whole pages. Strictly speaking, one could perhaps argue that this kind of rewriting is simply an extension of the explicitation of culturally specific elements that we've just discussed. It is simply that in this case, they are concerned not with the topography of port au prince or voodoo temples or ceremonies, but with the recent and contemporary politics of Haiti. If viewed as mere cultural transposition, they are unexceptionable from the perspective of translation theory. Here is Maria Timashko again, quote, Other shifts have a cultural basis. The translator must decide how to handle features of the source culture, for example, objects, customs, historical or literary allusions, that are unfamiliar to the receiving audience. End of quotation. It is understandable that Victor should wish to reorientate his text towards an international audience, but what is at stake here is the nature of that reorientation. So, what of this third category of textual exp expansion? The textual editions to the 2003 edition are all aimed at reinforcing a small number of political messages, namely, 1. The Ilu is the head of Haiti's drugs trade. He uses the proceeds from that to buy off the international community. He is maintained in power by an instrumentalised police force and by the violence of the drug adult street gangs known as Chimères. The Chimères are the latter-day version of the Duvalier's Tonton Macout. Therefore, the élu is the new Duvalier. Here is one example among many. In the 2003 edition, we read, quote, A superb Nissan patrol costing $50,000 with national police registration plates whose sirens were screaming in order to force a way through this hell. In the Nissan patrol, I could see only the driver, an ape of a man whose eyes were hidden behind sunglasses and whose torso was adorned by half a dozen gold chains. Three years on, in the 2003 French edition, the price of the vehicle has not appreciated, but its occupants have taken on a more menacing demeanour. Quote, the superb Nissan Patrol costing $50,000 with registration plates, of the national of the registration plates of the National Police, or should I say, the ALU's personal police force, whose sirens were screaming in order to force a way through this hell. Inside the luxury vehicle were five policemen 
wearing spanking new uniforms, two of whom were brandishing galils. That's what all that development aid to the police bullshit has been used for, to create another gang, another militia. The most heavily rewritten section of the whole novel comes in Chapter 4, or Chapter 5 in the 2000 edition. At this point, Eric is being pursued by the Simo, which is an elite police unit. He flees through the alleyways of a shantytown where he is rescued from his pursuers by a young man introducing himself as Soldat Antoine, who is the leader of all of the organisations populaires in the country. He wishes to introduce Eric to the leaders of the other OPs. In the 2000 edition, the motivations of these young men, a desperation born of social exclusion and near starvation, is readily recognisable. Quote, young, for the most part, poor and hungry. End of quote. But three years on, their hunger has taken on more acquisitive overtones. Quote, young, for the most part, poor and hungry for power and riches. In the 2000 edition, they are a sorry, skinny bunch whose weaponry does not inspire much fear. Quote, two of them were holding hempen ropes. A few others were waving machetes around threateningly. But three years on, their armory has been dramatically enhanced. Quote, some of them were brandishing Israeli-made automatic weapons. Victor's rewriting of this episode significantly amplifies and foregrounds an element that is present in the original text, but without having been given any special prominence, and I refer to the bestial or cannibalistic nature of the OP leaders. This semantic ex escalation is set within a specific historical frame, the full measure of which would probably not have been, ob been obvious to French readers of the 2003 edition of the novel, even with the explanation provided by the extensive rewritings. It emerges that the premises where Eric finds himself are in fact a kind of classroom, an indoctrination centre for street kids. On the blackboard is the slogan of Aristide's Fami Lavalas party. Une seule nous faible, ensemble nous faux, ensemble, ensemble nous se lavalas. Alone we are weak, together we are strong, together, together we are a landslide. And it is surrounded by photographs of Marx, Lenin, Che, Mao and, of course, Lelu. At this point, Eric hears children reciting the following words, quote, We need the skin of a white man for parchment, his skull for a writing case, his blood for ink, and a bayonet as a pen. Which are, he informs us, quote, the famous words of Waron Tonnerre. In 2003, he further explains that Waron Tonnerre was, quote, the private secretary of General Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the founder of the aforementioned Haitian nation. The way that Victor's narrator here speaks directly to non-Haitian readers, since Haitians would hardly need to be informed of the fact that Dessalines was one of the founders of their country, is doubtless clumsy, but it is in keeping with the tone of the whole episode, which presents in an authoritative, didactic tone what is in reality an extremely tendentious version of Haitian history, or, as Victor puts it, the sacred myths of the country. A little later, he changes the phrase, the notorious Boiron, Tonnerre into le, le tristement célèbre Boiron Tonnerre, or yes, the notorious Boiron Tonnerre. So Boiron may well have once been notorious or tristement célèbre, but not in Haiti. He, like his master Dessalines, was roundly vilified and anathematized by the French former colonists and other European and New World slaving nations, but in Haiti he is remembered as the author of the Haitian Declaration of Independence of 1804, the scribe who gave memorable expression to the determination of a newly free nation never to fall back into slavery. 
Yahik picks up on, quote, the obscenity of these words and on their cannibalistic overtones, quote, I imagine that somewhere close to me there was gathered together an assembly of young cannibals. These overtones are clearly present in Warren's famous words, but their significance is perhaps not quite as crude as Eric's reaction would have us believe. The words were carefully chosen and designed to perform a particular rhetorical reversal, as Subula Fischer has shown in a brief but illuminating reading of Warren's declaration. Quote, in a declaration which self-consciously appropriates the cannibalistic imagery the metropolis had created for describing non-European savages, Boirontaner depicts a rupture much more radical than a mere declaration of independence. It is a break that involves a whole set of new equivalents between white body parts and raw materials, writing and warfare, spirit and body, slave and master. End of quote. Eric Victor understands, quote, these words stinking of hatred of the most crass and sinister kind, unquote, as partaking of a crude economy of revenge of black against white. But physical revenge, as Fischer goes on to point out, was not quite what Baron's words were evoking. Quote, if slavery deprived people of colour of their personhood and humanity, the Declaration of Haitian Independence reduces the slaveholders to an assemblage of expendable body parts, bones, blood, skin. However, this act of revenge is not unmediated. Under the colonial slaveholding regime, writing was a domain largely prohibited to the slave. The Declaration of Independence is thus also an act of wresting away writing from the former master. It is in this act of writing one's name, Haiti, that the former master is reduced to a bag of body parts, not in the act of direct revenge. End of quote. No doubt with one eye on the intended metropolitan French readership of the novel, Victor is careful to leave Warren's famous statement incomplete. He omits perhaps the most famous or notorious, depending on your perspective, sentence of Boiron's preamble. Le nom français lugubre encore nos contrées. It is the specifically Haitian French inflection of the neologism lugubre and its resistance to translation that leads Fischer to put forward the idea that the revenge envisioned by Boiron has as much to do with writing back as with bloody massacre. Quote, if writing arrived as a colonial skill, it needs to be done with the colonialist blood. If the French language arrived with slavery, it needs to be forced to say what it would not. The French name still grieves our lands. So, from one untranslatable term, I'd like now to move on to a mistranslated one. A term that I've already mentioned, the term chimé, already appears italicised in the first edition of the novel, applied not to the quote, hooligans of the popular organisations, but to Eric himself. At one point, the Petit Saint-Pierre says to Mataro, quote, you should thank your lucky stars that he didn't gun you down. He's frustrated. He's a chimé, as they say in that appalling language that you use these days. Already in 2000, the term, or its misleading French rendering, chimère, was being used in Haiti to refer to members of street gangs, based in the shanty towns of Port-au-Prince and other cities, who were regarded as being more or less allied to and aligned with Aristide's family Lavalas party. But that was not the primary meaning of the word in Creole. In Creole, chimé means ill-humour, normally ill-humour occasioned by a specific disappointment. The Creole expression en chimé translates, quote, a temporary pathological state occasioned by a certain disappointment or disillusionment 
that apparently induces an individual to commit acts of violence or aggression on anyone who annoys him or just happens to get in his way. End quote. That, of course, describes perfectly the actions and motivations of Eric, sacked from his job and deserted by his girlfriend and exacting vengeance on the man he holds responsible and anyone else unfortunate enough to cross his path. Given that he is clearly not a member of a pro-Lavalas street gang, so in that sense it is this sense of the Creole term that predominates in the first edition of the novel, the sense of uh, frustré, a frustrated person, and it functioning, functioning alongside the derived meaning of gangster. However, in the 2003 version, the term is overwritten, as it were, by the secondary meaning of gangster, and that was a label which Victor could legitimately have expected his new French readers to be familiar with, and we'll see shortly why. It's one of the many inconsistencies in the 2003 edition of the of Alangle du Parallel, and one that arises directly from the particular inflection that Victor's rewritings give to that novel, that the text is unable to decide whether the Chimere are ideologically motivated shock troops of l'élu or common criminals self-serving opportunists. The historic truth probably takes the form of a both-and rather than an either-or. Haitian-born political scientist Robert Fatton Jr., one of the few informed commentators to go beyond journalistic labels in his discussion of the Chimère phenomenon, distinguishes between Zanglando, who are, quote, criminal elements linked to the drug trade and the old duvalious repressive security apparatus, unquote, and the Chimère, which are, quote, a political entity associated with Lavalas, unquote. But associated with is a vague term, and Faton himself, writing in early 2002, stresses the increasing autonomy of the Chimère. Quote, Paradoxically, while the Chimère may have played a useful role in consolidating Fami Lavalas's power, they have become progressively more autonomous and are no longer a pliable instrument in Aristide's arsenal. He later expands, quote, while it would be naive to assume that Aristide has no authority over them, it would be equally simplistic to think that he fully controls them. The relationship between Chimère and Aristide seems to be based on an opportunistic convergence of interests. On the one hand, Aristide appears to have broad power over their activities, but the exercise of that power is curbed and shaped by his concern for the Chimère's adverse impact on his own capacity to rule effectively. End of quote. The portrayal of the relationship between the Chimère and l'élu is rather less nuanced in Along les Dieux Parallèles, where they are portrayed as, quote, always ready to unleash violence on an order from the élu whose paranoia sensor was activated by the merest suspicion of bourgeois interference, unquote. One reason why all of this is important for an appreciation of what Victor's rewriting of his novel achieves is that it raises important questions about the authority of the narrative voice. In the 2000 edition, authority is vested clearly in the narrative voice of Eric. That authority would be absolute were it not for doubts raised in the text as to the reliability of the narrator. Eric's vision of this deliquescent society is undermined by comments such as those already quoted of the Petit Saint-Pierre and by the reactions of his erstwhile girlfriend, Salmé. She says, quote, I don't want to see you anymore. I've had enough of your violence and your frustration. Unquote. Such comments suggest an attempt, albeit a fleeting one, to offer an alternative frame of reference for our reading of Eric. What if this violence and this frustration that Eric ascribes to the Chimère were nothing but the projection of his own violence and frustration? 
Moments such as these, not to mention the fact that Eric is a psychopathic mass murderer, invite a global reading of the text predicated on the unreliability of the narrator by dint of his manifest lack of self-awareness and his insincerity. But such a reading sits uneasily beside the confident didacticism of Eric's habitual presentation for the reader's benefit of the way things are. A presentation which covers everything from the ecological crisis caused by deforestation to the predations of Haiti's morally repugnant elites through the occult connections between voodoo and political power to the interference of the international community in Haiti's affairs. And not forgetting, of course, the current political conjunction. My point is that the authority of the narrative voice, and therefore of the vision it promotes, is further bolstered by additions made by Victor for the 2003 edition. The most notable of these is the author's foreword. In that foreword, Eric is said by his author to take, quote, a desperately lucid look at society, and to have provided, quote, a lucid and a sincere account. The foreword is an endorsement by Victor of his narrator's vision. More than that, it actually adopts in advance the voice of that narrator, a voice marked by the same hyperbolic rhetoric, quote, only a lucid and sincere account or testimony can perhaps help to prevent the unthinkable, the unnameable, the inhuman from happening. End of quotation. And by the same didacticism. When we come to read Eric's depreciatory comments on Le Peuple, that is to say the 85% of Haitians who live in absolute poverty, whom he describes as, quote, an army of imbeciles entrusted with cooking the potatoes, and as a people who only have themselves to blame for the plight they find themselves in, uh, quote, the disastrous economic situation was finishing off the people, but they only had themselves to blame since they were the ones who, in their sempiternal mystico revolutionary trance, had installed the Elu in power in the first place. When we read these comments, then, we're already prepared to accept them as authoritative, since the author has already assured his readers in the foreword that in Haiti, quote, the excluded worship their chains. End of quote. In brief, the author's foreword, as one might expect, is an authorization of the text. It closes the text and directs its interpretation. The limited plurivocalism of the 2000 edition is reduced to a fairly crude monologism. In a word, Victor's 2003 rewriting of his novel, in closing off its interpretability, reduces it to something close to propaganda, or in the words of one Haitian reviewer, un pamphlet politique, a political pamphlet. A Langue des Rues Parallèles is admittedly a minor novel, but whatever literary merit it may have had is considerably diminished by the manner in which its author chose to rewrite it for consumption outside of Haiti. It may have gained in polish, fewer typos, fewer grammatical errors and stylistic bloomers, but it has lost in literarity. If, as Lawrence Venuti has argued, translation means that, quote, the foreign text is not so much communicated as inscribed within domestic intelligibilities and interests, end of quote, just what were the domestic intelligibilities and interests into which Victor sought to inscribe his text? At the period that concerns us, there was no little awareness of and interest in Haiti among educated French readers. From the moment Aristide was re-elected in 2000, he was subject to, to a relentless and almost entirely negative coverage in the French and American press in particular. Much of that coverage originated with a very small number of reporters who were talking to a very small circle of elite informants. 
Le Monde was particularly dependent on the dispatches of its correspondent, Jean-Michel Carrois. Here is Peter Howard on Carrois. Of all the journalists who took up the role assigned to them by an obsessively anti-Aristide anti French embassy in Port-au-Prince, none made such an important contribution as Le Monde's Jean-Michel Carrois. It's difficult to see how Carrois could plausibly have done more to shore up French strategic requirements of the day. End of quote. Beyond the post-colonial melancholy that had coloured France's attitude towards Haiti ever since it lost its Pearl of the Antilles, that country had a strong interest in ridding itself of the troublesome priest, Aristide, and installing a government that looked more favourably on French business. If the French embassy was already obsessively anti-Aristide in 2000, it would become even more so after April 2003, coincidentally the month in which Victor's novel appeared in France. April 2003 was the bicentenary of the death of Toussaint Louverture, the great Haitian revolutionary leader. President Aristide commemorated it by demanding from the French government a sum of nearly $22 billion by way of restitution of what was known as the French debt. This was the vast indemnity that Charles X had effectively extorted from Haiti in 1825, both as the price of recognition and as compensation for the loss of so-called colonial property, namely slaves. Repaying the debt and servicing the loans, largely from French banks, taken out to repay the debt crippled and distorted the Haitian economy until well into the 20th century. The reaction of Jacques Chirac's government and of the French media to Aristide's demand was predictable. Quote, and this is Chris Bongi, The French government's dismissive reaction to Aristide's suggestion that France remember Haiti in a certain way was duly matched by the French media's growing hostility regardless of political allegiances to the regime that dared put forward such provocative claims. From the right-wing Figaro to the left-wing Libération, the French press engaged in media lynching of Aristide and his former Lavalas party that was reminiscent of nothing so much as the diatribes directed at the leaders of the Haitian Revolution by many a French writer some 200 years before. End of quote. When we talk, then, of the domestic intelligibilities into which Victor was at pains to inscribe his text, we are less concerned with how familiar French readers were with voodoo liturgy, Haitian flora and fauna, or the topography of Port au Prince, than with what they knew, or thought they knew, about the political situation in Haiti in 2003, and especially with what they thought they knew about Aristide, so thinly disguised in that novel as L'Elu. To mark the bicentenary of the world's first independent black republic, Le Monde published a dossier of articles that had appeared in the paper over the previous five years. It makes monotonous reading. The same set of messages is repeated endlessly from article to article. They are the self-same messages that Victor felt impelled to strengthen and amplify in the rewriting of his novel. Here is a typical headline. Quote, once again, Haiti is living in terror of the armed gangs, the heirs to the Tonton Makout, and close to the regime of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. End of quote. Let us admire in passing the slyness of Carrois' formulation, proche du pouvoir, close to power, close to the power. The gangs, of course, have a name. They are les chimères. Quote, the chimères, these armed gangs recruited by the regime in the shanty towns. In the pages of Le Monde, European and North American countries are ruled by governments or administrations, whereas Haiti and other impoverished third world countries are, it seems, in the perennial grip of nebulous pouvoir, or at best, a regime. Aristide himself emerges from the dossier as a delirious megalomaniac, 
a cross between Scarface and Caligula, or in Victor's own description of Lelu, quote, a monster sprung from the mentally ill world of Haiti. End of quote. In the coverage given to Haiti at this period in the French press, Aristide is made to fit neatly into well-established Western narrative about Haiti. That narrative was perfectly expressed in a piece by François Auter in Le Figaro. Quote, For 200 years, 45 heads of state, for the most part bloody dictators, have followed each other in power. Three quarters of them never completed their mandate. Two centuries of heartbreak. The hopes of this people of eight million souls, after a magnificent epic, have been betrayed by their elites. The regime of the latest president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, fits perfectly into that tragic schema. End of quote. This tragic schema is not, of course, unique to Haiti. French readers will readily understand that it is the common lot of all former colonies from which the firm hand of civilised governance has been removed. But it is certainly a recurrent topos of what Howard refers to as, quote, the profoundly racist First World commentary on the island, that poor, non-white people are incapable of governing themselves, end of quote. When assessing the levels of domestic intelligibilities, Victor and his publishers clearly had every reason then to assume that educated French readers would be familiar with a certain general narrative about recent Haitian politics. It is also clear that when Victor chose to rewrite his novel in the way he did, he was entering into a pact of epistemic complicity with some strange bedfellows. The question is why? First, Victor and other Haitian intellectuals who were opposed to Aristide for their various reasons did not just slip carelessly into a de facto alliance with anti-Aristide forces with which they would normally not wish to be publicly associated, namely disgruntled former military and death squad members, former and current Duvalierists, the CIA-trained and armed insurgents who had been destabilising the country for two years in an attempt to ferment popular unrest, and above all, the Haitian business elites who funded openly or clandestinely all of the above, the opposition to Aristide, we now know, was in fact highly coordinated. An important strand in that opposition was the so-called Groupe des 184, or the G184. This was a Haitian civil society group conceived and created in December 2002 with the assistance of the Washington-based International Republican Institute and its manufactured spin-off, the Haiti Democracy Project. Its aim was to hasten the departure of Haiti's newly re-elected president and return control of the Haitian economy to its rightful guardians, the Haitian oligarchs and their foreign financial and ideological backers in the USA. The G184 was fronted by two of those oligarchs, sweatshop millionaires Andy Apaid Jr. and Charles Henry Baker. Apaid's father had been one of the financiers of the bloody 1991 coup against Aristide, and the ensuing military junta had been enthusiastically supported by the same business leaders who now came together in the G184. With thinkers like those at the helm, it was always going to be difficult, credibly, to maintain the image of political neutrality that this civil society group wished to project to the outside world. And this is where the intellectuals came in. They functioned as a fig leaf for the hardcore political reactionaries who were the beating heart of the G184. Their role consisted, the role of the intellectuals that is, consisted in using their contacts and influence outside of Haiti, especially in France, to publicise the full horror of the Lavalas dictatorship. Towards the end of 2003 and the start of 2004, they did an excellent job in preparing French public opinion 
for the naked neo-colonial aggression of February the 29th, 2004, when Aristide was ousted for a second time, and dressing it up as a meritorious act of humanitarian intervention. To conclude, I began by suggesting that translation theory can help us to appreciate the changes undergone by text when it journeys from one cultural context, that of its production, to another, that of its consumption. That process of translation applies as much to post-colonial writing per se as it does to interlingual translation. From the outset, the writer is making choices that orientate the text towards a certain receiving audience, making judgments concerning intelligibility and interpretation. In all of this, the economic dimension is ever-present, even as aesthetic concerns may appear to predominate, because an insufficiently domesticated text always runs the risk of simply fading to find a publisher. It follows then that a, a degree of explicitation of cultural or historical realities is of central importance. An excess of explicitation can lead to unacceptable levels of didacticism, which detract from the openness or literarity of the text. I have shown, however, that in the case of A Langue des Rues Parallèles, the loss in literarity is compensated from Victor's point of view by gain in narratorial, narratorial authority. That authority, derived from the conflation of the function of the narrator as in-text explicator and the author as peritextual informant, for example in the glossary and the preface, is crucial to the delivery of the ideological or political message of the text. <laughs>